fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Nutrition Heretic. This is Adrian Hugh, The Nutrition Heretic. And today in the studio, I have Graham Ellis of Pono Solutions Consulting. One of the reasons why I wanted him on the show is because uh, if you remember a few weeks back, I interviewed Bruce Fife, who is the father of most of the books that we now know about coconuts and coconut oil and coconut water and, and the benefits to, to people. And uh, if you remember correctly, I was talking about my trip to Jamaica about seven years ago now. Uh, went to see some cousins, some long-distant cousins that we hadn't seen and we lost touch with because their father, who was my mother's brother, he had died when she was younger. So when she moved to the United States, long story, they lost touch with that, that we lost touch with that part of the family. So when we go to Jamaica, we find uh, that... Uh, the kids there don't know a lot of their local foods. Uh, one being the coconut. So my daughter, Daisy, who at the time was five, she had to introduce her Jamaican cousin, Jamaican born and raised, never been off the island cousins to coke the beauty of coconut water because otherwise they were drinking this nasty stuff called, they, they didn't even come up with a good name for it. They just called it bag juice. <laughs> just colored colored sugar water uh came in a bag and they would suck on these things all day meanwhile there were coconuts above their heads full of the most delicious coconut water you can imagine and they had no use for it or they didn't think they had a, a use for it but in their minds this was progress uh you as part of progress we teach our kids that uh they don't have to rely on the food from the land and they can just get anything they want at the corner store uh no matter how damaging it is uh to their health another thing that i touched on was that uh coconut oil uh has is almost completely gone uh, i did see a few brands in one supermarket in kingston and that supermarket I could tell just by the way they looked in the bottle that many of them were tainted. Uh, you could tell which ones in this cold, cold supermarket were still uh, liquid, which is a sign that they've been mixed. I mean, because the, these uh, supermarkets, not the, not the small ones, but the bigger ones, uh, they were freezing inside. And the coconut oil was uh, purely liquid at what had to be below, well below 70 degrees. So um, it was clear, and, and I actually bought some for comparison, and you could taste the difference. They had, the, they had a, a greasy slick to them, uh, probably more like car oil than uh, coconut oil. And um, not that I've tasted car oil, but I can imagine 
<laughs> not being uh, very palatable. Uh, and then also uh, there was uh, the flavor, which was totally off, even compared to a uh, coconut oil that's been fumigated in, you know, the, the uh, typical ones that we would see here in the United States. So that was really dis disappointing because uh, one of my cousins was suffering from arthritis. Actually, two of my cousins were suffering from arthritis, their brother and sister. Uh, the sister, she liked the idea of what I was saying, and she started making coconut oil again. A couple of weeks later, she calls me up and tells me all of her joint pain is gone. Her brother, on the other hand, decided that, you know, that was heresy and uh, continued eating margarine and using bees to sting himself so that he could get rid of his joint pain. It's not rocket science, but uh, there are certain things that uh, when we start to look at our health problems, we have to start questioning what have we changed since these uh, health problems have occurred. So with that, I wanted to uh, introduce Graham Ellis. Uh, like I said, he is uh, from Pono Solutions Consulting. Uh, here in Hawaii. And uh, he grew up in a very different world from us. And I think he, he can kind of um, relate to this false pro uh, promise of progress uh, that I was discussing just a moment ago with my cousins. Welcome, Graham. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> you can't nod on radio. Okay. <laughs> I did grow up in England, it's true, uh, 65 years ago. And I certainly had a different experience to the typical American uh, consumer of food in this culture today. Uh, my grandmother actually never had a refrigerator. Oh, wow. So icebox. Or, or no, I, no icebox. <laughs> um, she just had a cool box in, in the um, little alleyway by the side of her house. So spending summers with her, it was not an expectation of mine that I would have foods from a refrigerator. In fact, the tradition in my family uh, and many families in Europe, in fact, is to go shopping every day for fresh food and buy small quantities. That's what my grandmother did and that's what my mother did until we moved from the town where I was born out into the country. Uh, when we were in the country, and we didn't have a car until I was 10 years old, we didn't have to worry about food because the food came to us. We actually had a milkman, as is the tradition in Britain, uh, come every morning. Uh, we had uh, a butcher who drove his van and supplied us with local meats that he himself had butchered. Wow. Um, we never knew what was coming. He would just bring what he had and we'd select from that. But uh, most significantly, we actually had our fruits and vegetables and um, a number of other items too, delivered to us by the local farmer with a horse and cart. And I'm talking... <laughs> I'm talking the 20th century now, not the 19th century. I'm only going back <laughs> to my childhood, which is about 55 years uh, when I was, you know, up to the age of 10 or 12. He delivered every single week fresh vegetables that he'd harvested from his farm. And that was how we lived. We didn't have any packets, cans, tins of any significance until probably I was 14, 15. In fact, I remember in England the very first time uh, pasta and rice were sold commercially in supermarkets. There were advertisements um, on the television, which 
we just got by then <laughs> to teach English housewives how to prepare and cook pasta and rice. Because up mm -hmm. until that point, as far as uh, carbohydrates are concerned, they had only ever cooked potatoes. We bought our potatoes in a 112-pound sack. Right. And they kept us through... Well, I wouldn't say all the winter because I had uh, four siblings, but um, a considerable amount of time. And they were, of course, all purchased from the local farmer. Life was very different. Uh, we didn't shop in supermarkets. There was no such thing. And I think we ate a lot more healthy than people do today. Right. And and uh, this is always interesting to me because uh, when you look at longevity rates, England is not too shabby. I mean, you've got a decent number of centenarians, and they all grew up that way. What a lot of people don't don't seem to connect is that the centenarians of today had a very different start to life than the kids who were born today. Yes, um, living a long life was not dependent upon medical intervention. Medical intervention is what <laughs> I was going to say, and supplements. Uh, in fact, you know, the culture that I grew up in and to a large extent, still adhere to today is one in which if you're eating healthy, you don't need supplements. Right. Uh, the culture that I experienced when I came to the United States was we're not eating healthy, so we sure need uh, a cupboard full of supplements. And it was horrifying to me to see educated people needing to supplement their uh, nutrition with pills and potions and to see the extent to which health food stores were packed mm -hmm. with artificial foods. Well, you know, I, I completely agree. Uh, one thing that I would add to that, though, is the fact that our food supply, our, well, first of all, we've raped the topsoil. <laughs> the topsoil is not there. Studies going back to the 40s looking at the nutritional quality of food in America is has shown that uh, the soil is, is depleted. Uh, and while in best case scenario, I want to say, no, we shouldn't have to have supplements. I do find that a lot of people, no matter how well they eat on American soil, mm -hmm. need that. They can go to other parts of the world and they're fine. <laughs> but they come here and, and this, is a, this is a huge problem. That is a product of the uh, monoculture system that we've had um, that has depleted the soils and uh, chemical fertilizers. It's a great tragedy. Um, I actually wanted to follow up your story about Jamaica yeah. with how I got to Hawaii. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh, Because do. I actually was living in the Caribbean oh. directly before coming to Hawaii. Uh, that's where I learned to eat from the land of um, foods that were uh, tropical. And so I, I ate all the local foods down there. And when I came to Hawaii, it was horrifying to me the first week I was here to see the amount of food that was in people's yards and gardens and, and in some cases farms just falling on the ground. Because mm -hmm. in the four and a half years I lived in St. Lucia, I never saw a single avocado, mango, breadfruit, orange, lemon, lime, coconut, nothing on the ground. Right. Everything was eaten. And I couldn't believe it that I came here and there was all kinds of good quality food just rotting or being eaten by pigs whilst people were going to the store and buying oranges and 
from Florida and avocados from California. Don't even get me started on that. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me. But it, once again, it's a product of the you know American consumerism and the one-stop shop. You go one place and think you buy everything uh, that you need. But um, coconut oil actually um, was introduced to me in St. Lucia. Okay. Um, the local people in the, in the village where I lived the last year I was there made it themselves mm-hmm. on charcoal, over charcoal fires. Yeah, that's how my cousin makes it as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very slow process, but it's the most oh, aromatic and, and tasty coconut oil that you can imagine. It was available in all the stores when mm-hmm. I was there. I cooked with it. I didn't know any other oil. However, when I brought it back, uh, as I did, from the village where I lived to Canada, um, to friends, uh, nobody thought about cooking with it. They were just rubbing it over their bodies and using it as, exactly. a, as a body lotion, which is was very which is funny. Fine, yeah. uh, and it's fine, but um, you know, there they were, uh, not uh, realizing the nutritional benefits of, exactly. of uh, you know, a, a very small-scale, locally produced uh, product. And such is the way people prefer the packaging and something they've seen advertised on television, uh, which is very sad. It is because uh, yeah, what I find funny about that, sorry to cut you off, but one of the things I find funny about that is that we don't trust you know, politicians, the government with anything. But when it comes to our health, we're just like, oh, well, the government wouldn't allow it to happen if yeah. it wasn't good. You know? <laughs> so somehow it's vetted already when by the time it gets to TV, because it's been through all of these agencies and these these government officials making the decision for you. Absolutely. Um, there are mer- many areas in which the government don't know best. <laughs> and food is definitely one of them. And obviously, once again, it's an example of of the influence that large food producers have in terms of lobbying and and the creation of legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to mention another experience I had soon after arriving in Hawaii, actually. I came here as a teacher, but uh, needed to start a business when my teaching job fell through. I started producing macadamia oh. nut butter. Mm-hmm. And I was actually the first commercial producer of really? macadamia nut butter here on the island. And uh, it grew and grew uh, in the islands here. It was a very natural, organic product uh, through health food store distribution. And I got uh, the opportunity to package it and ship it to the mainland in little glass jars. And so I traipsed off to some food shows in, mm-hmm. uh, on the mainland uh, to promote my business and the new product. And it was remarkable at these trade shows where there'd be hundreds of people every day coming by and tasting samples. How time and time again, even though I had big signs up uh, saying macadamia nut butter, and obviously on the jars and the labels, it was all macadamia butter, uh, people would eat it and describe it as, oh, you mean this this macadamia peanut butter? Um, <laughs> And it was always peanut, peanut. No, it's macnut. It's different right. nut. Right, and exactly. I realized there the depth to which people in, in regards to food, you know, are indoctrinated to in, in terms of, you know, what they eat and what they think is food and and uh, very narrow-minded. And, and I had a hard job getting people to convert from peanut butter to macadamia butter. And I, I discovered after reading about this that um, 
and this is very interesting cultural lesson that people will move to a different country uh, get a different job mm -hmm. uh, speak a different language mm -hmm. live a totally different lifestyle they can change their religion but they'll keep eating the same food mm -hmm. which is why we have so many foreign uh, corporations restaurants like, yeah. you know in in small restaurants so Thai, like Indian, to say like or to, cater like, um, to local um, taste but that is a true fact you know people are very resistant to changing their food habits see and i, and I love challenge. i love eating other people's food <laughs> it just it's just uh bread in me there's so much opportunity and choices the other day i was at the farmer's market and an older hawaiian born chinese woman she was eating uh thai food for the first time she was she looked like she was about 65 and she was she, she goes you know i don't know why i didn't eat this before i used to always give it the eye <laughs> and then she said but she said it was the most delicious thing she'd had in a long time i'm like yeah you know well, that's great. it pays off to to try something new every once in a while so tell tell me uh, when you think about sustainability because that is your domain, let's say, and well, at least within the scope of of this conversation. You know, what do you lament that that has gone away, and what do you, because you just recently got a, a grant to promote sustainability within the islands, and that's one of the reasons why we were kind of put together to start talking because this has been my pet and peeve as well since I've come here. I send my kid to school with plantains and all the kids give her the eye. They, st they stare at her like she's crazy because they're like, what the heck are you eating? <laughs> I'm saying it's that thing that grows up there and like right above your head and it's one of your native foods. So, you know, what do, what do you lament about, uh, about the loss of uh, since your childhood uh, that you're trying to bring back in, in a way through this grant? Well, first let, let me say before talking about the grant yeah, yeah. that I am presently the president of the Hawaii Sustainable Community Alliance and was the founder of that organization back in 2012. And I've been actually living a sustainable lifestyle for about 25 years. I lived on solar power, catchment water, been growing my own food and on and on and on. Um, the alliance brought me together with a lot of other people involved in that movement, and I have been studying this um, since I've been in Hawaii, which is 35 years now. And I think the Hawaiian Islands are a very good example of what sustainable living used to be and potentially what it could be. Because before the uh, white man actually came as an invasive species here. <laughs> and I just um, like to underscore that it was a Brit. <laughs> um, the notorious Captain Cook, yes, yes. indeed. Um, up until he came, the Hawaiian Islands were inhabited by about the same population that exists right now, according to most of the historians that have researched population, which is over a million people. They had been here without contact from the Western world uh, for 1,500 years wow. or so, and they lived 100% sustainably. Mm -hmm. They didn't import anything. And, and I'm using sustainable in the sense of not importing anything. Yes. And in a regenerative sense, in that they replaced what they took. Right. And in fact, 
if it was soil, they made the soil more fertile. Mm -hmm. It was a fruit tree. They were uh, pruning the fruit tree to make it produce more. If yes. it was a taro bed growing uh, taro, they made sure that they nurtured it with all the nutrients so that it would grow mm -hmm. more taro in the future. Right. Nothing was done to deplete, deprive, and eliminate until the white man came. And then they started importing foods and replacing the foods that had supported them uh, for well over a thousand years, slowly, slowly, and uh, adopting uh, a foreign uh, food culture. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we've got, after the Second World War, the notorious uh, introduction of Spam, <laughs> uh, which, you know, according to statistics, uh, now puts Hawaii just after Guam as the world's highest uh, consumer of spam per head of right. population. So, you know, there's been a continuous uh, movement away from sustainable food production here. So what I've tried to do is, is, is look at that, think about that, study that, and, and ponder on, you know, how possible is it to return to that, not completely, but move in that direction. Luckily, coming from the Caribbean, I was familiar with eating breadfruit, and that was a big start for me. I planted breadfruit trees on the land where I lived, and um, that's the equivalent of the, the Englishman's potato. Right. Well, that's something you can eat every day and nine months of the year it's it's producing. And and that is the reason why Hawaii was on the map, because wasn't Captain Cook looking for a source of breadfruit? Uh, that's Captain Bly. Oh, sorry, Captain Bly. That's sorry. all right. But... Um, you know, the Tahitians, um, it was one of the canoe crops that was oh, brought okay. to yeah. Hawaii because it sustains people. Now, unfortunately, not only have a lot of the uh, breadfruit forests been destroyed to grow sugarcane or coffee or something else, uh, but even, even Hawaiians, sad to say, have eliminated breadfruit from their daily diet now they'll eat it a, a luau as a special treat but most not of the, most of the ones i talk to, to most of the ones i talk to they don't even know how to eat it and no. and i have to no. show them and yeah. make it for them yeah. and it's, it's very it's, sad and it's it been is. replaced by rice which is of course all imported there's no rice grown on the islands here uh rice is now you know the staple which is totally unsustainable but in terms of you know what is sustainable as i mentioned locally produced is a very big part of it for me. A number of years ago, we contemplated a situation whereby what would we do if the barges stopped running? And this isn't a hypothetical, you know, what if, it's a question of when. Because the world as we know it is increasingly full of, you know, growth of natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, uh, terrorism, you know, strikes. Um, there's a number of different reasons why barges could stop coming to Hawaii. And if they did, um, we're faced with a situation where currently we import about 85% of all the food that is consumed here. Now, we know that it is possible to produce 100% of all the food that would sustain us. But sustaining and consuming are, t are two different things mm -hmm. because People want to consume what they choose, not eat what is available. And for me, that's where sustainable living begins, is looking at 
what food do you actually have existing? Right. And one of the big shockers for me coming from the Caribbean is the, for example, apart from breadfruit, avocados and oranges, which I already mentioned falling on the ground, but nobody here ever seems to eat the yellow guava. Now, mm -hmm. down in the Caribbean, uh, you've probably heard the reggae song, you know, guava jelly, guava right. jam, right? right. Um, yeah, it's a locally available product, all the markets, they're selling yellow guavas. Now, people here just turn their nose up. It's, there's no reason. It's a perfectly good food. But they eat grapes from uh, Mexico, Mexico or Argentina and, and, or whatever. You know, <laughs> all kinds of imported foods from everywhere else, but they don't eat local fruits. And so, you know, sustainable eating, sustainable food sources uh, means eating what grows locally. Learn to love what loves to grow mm -hmm. where you live. And that, that's one of the wonderful things about your story is that you didn't know what was coming from the butcher. He had something that week and that's what you got and that's what you may do with you. There's got to be something uh, to be said for the fact that a lot of people don't know how to cook and don't know how to consume these foods. How, how do we how do we start training people and, and getting them interested in learning about it? Well, that's, thank you. That leads me into the grant that I just wrote. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> and, and received from USDA a Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Project. And my proposal to them was to stimulate the demand for locally grown foods through the farmer's markets that we have here on the Big Island. Mm. And I will be going to 18 farmer's markets I'm going to be researching what foods they have available, and I'm going to be looking at ways to publicize, uh, advertise, and market those foods through adapting existing cookbooks. I'll do food demos if you need some. Food demos, definitely. <laughs> through um, promoting um, lists of, of foods that are in season at different times and available at different farmers markets because we have a, a variety of climates on the island so some part time of the year we'll have certain foods here in Waimea but other times we don't they're out of season but they're in season in Kona right you know and so I will be advertising that and providing materials to the vendors when I go back a second time for them to share with their customers I'm also going to be looking at uh, the opportunities for farmers to produce value-added products uh, with the foods that they grow because value-added products enable them to actually make more money than just selling the, the, the raw foods. And um, Sorry, can you just explain in case people don't understand what value-added means? Well, a, a value-added product would be a jam, for example, or jelly. Right. Uh, something you actually make with the fruit or sauerkraut that you make with uh, cabbage. Or, or cheese that's made from milk. Anything yeah, that, so. that uh, you do more work and you get more money. And that in people fact, aren't necessarily willing to do it themselves. Yeah. Well, there's some natural barriers. Um, one of them is our government uh, because of the rules and regulations that are required. It has to be produced in a commercial kitchen. has to be packaged in a certain way with a certain label and certain size print. And certain products have to have barcodes. But these are things that, as I mentioned through my macadamia nut butter experience, I've had to deal with. And I'm going to be helping other vendors to deal with the 
nice. legal obstacles that, that are involved. That's huge because, as you know, I was selling some Jamaican spices at the market. You know mm. that, right? Mm. <laughs> so yeah. I was making Jamaican jerk spice at the market. Yeah. And I called it my uh, Jamaican jerk cock rub because <laughs> it goes with my book. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so I, I was making it. And just getting through the legalese of that and, uh, you know, making sure everything was up to code. As a matter of fact, I have a friend who does uh, chai at the market, and he's recently been having issues because the acidity level uh, uh, rose during storage. And now it's not within the, you know, below 4.2 or whatever acidity level it's supposed to have to be in storage. and. Yeah. And so they they want to basically change the product, and he's saying, "But yeah. if I change the product, it's not good chai the way it was when I originally gave it to you." So it's working through that, and obviously we don't want to give anybody botulism or what have you. Uh, but yeah, these are these are things that, and one of the things that I ran into was that I wanted my my uh, jerk rub to be a wet rub the way it's normally used, but I ended up having to do it as a desiccated dry rub, which actually turned out pretty darn good if I do say so myself. But um, I had to do it that way because it was difficult to figure out what the, how to get the acidity where I needed it without spending $40 each time to get the state to test it. And, you know, do I add a teaspoon of lime or do I add a cup? Like, I don't know. And if I add a cup, that's not the same recipe anymore. Yeah. These are the obstacles that people have and they need help. Farmers aren't, uh, normally equipped with with that kind of information and and they need help to get it so in my research and education project at farmers markets i'm going to be doing that i'm also going to be um contacting um people who presently consume a high percentage of locally produced foods because i want to um, and i've proposed and it was accepted in my grant application to publicize the fact that these people are out there mm -hmm. uh, some of them i've got friends uh, from where i lived in Pune, who are 60 80 i've had friends that have actually gone 100 percent locally and i'm talking big island mm -hmm. foods for a period of time and uh, i think that they can be good role models for other people um, to look themselves at well how much you know what percentage of the foods that we actually are eating are grown on the island right. because we've got to change that statistic 85 percent is mm -hmm. imported mm -hmm. now as i mentioned if the barges stop running we're in serious trouble uh although it, those it, of us who know how to cook these indigenous foods we're going to be rolling in dough if we know where to find <laughs> if we know where to find and, and yes because as a matter of fact after we're done here i want you to hook me up with ulu with uh, breadfruit because yeah. that is has been my pet peeve like i was saying sure. i i'm looking for it all the time and yeah. i would be i would say that i probably eat mm, upwards of 70 percent local grown whether from my garden Excellent. or from the the farm that you work at well you might be one of the people that i pick to <laughs> publicize <laughs> and i mean you know if if you try you can find uh and so yeah yes. I, I, you know go down it can the, be done it can be and done we need and to inspire yeah, motivate other people one to of the do it. one of the things that i was just discussing yesterday is getting local mac nut oil oh and uh i know somebody and because uh, one of my I, and i love my olive oil yeah but well, if we can, if I can make a salad with mac nut oil, I can help you. I've been using mac nut oil for the last three years. There's mm -hmm. a producer down in Pune, and it's um, mm -hmm. usually available through the Locavore store. You in know, I, that one is not good for making mayonnaise. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> well, I'll but, put it that way. But, but I that, do have another one right up here in in uh, on the Hamakua Coast. Good. That that I they have a lighter good. one. That well, that, uh, that's what I'm hoping to do too. Is to point out to people that, uh, for example, Macnut producers uh, presently are selling Macnuts. The Macnut industry, for example, is a very very hard industry to. Uh, make any money at the mm-hmm. margin is very very low. Why? And it's a tough because to the farmers don't do value added products for the most part. Mm-hmm. They sell them in thousand pound sacks. Yes. To um, big companies that make uh, chocolates out of you know chocolate covered mac nuts and or garlic um, flavored. Or yeah, uh, commercial products, but. If they learn more about the possibilities of making macanut oil mm-hmm. or macadamia nut butter right. or other products that we need here in order to be locally sustainable, then we're in a win-win situation. Right. The farmers will make more money. They'll become more prosperous. We're going to encourage more people to farm. And we will benefit because we won't be bringing in imports, right. imported foods. Don't you think that to some extent there's a... Um... There's an issue for a lot of farmers where they're straddling two lives because they they have the macnut as as their kind of pet passion project, mm-hmm. and then they've got their day job, which you know could be corrupt for all we know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's just it's not necessarily something that aligns with their 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 vision. Let's say. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's the one that pays the bills, and so it's making that transition where they can now slowly let go of that side of the life to invest the extra time to make the oil, to make the value added products. Do you think that's, that's part of the equation? Yeah. I'm looking to promote demand. Mm. I believe that the supply will come if the demand is there. If we've got more people like yourself out there looking for macadamia oil that they can make mayonnaise with, (laughs) there will be farmers who will produce it. Right. If at the right price, if it's profitable for them, they will make it. We can't just leave it to the farmers to be everything. Entrepreneurs, marketeers, you know, retail outlets. We have to help them. And we can do that by uh, demonstrating that there are demands for different products. And, you know, hopefully through the educational work that we're both involved in is show people how they can substitute, let's say, imported olive oil or mm-hmm. other oils for locally produced macadamia oil right. in recipes that they're using. Exactly. They need to know that it can be done. I have to and tell you. Create that. the demand for at, the product. At Christmas time, I made a salad uh, and brought it to a friend's house and I used macnut oil in it. And everybody said, What is in the salad? It's so good. Well, you know, a little local honey, a little, (laughs) when I say little local honey, I think the whole salad maybe had a quarter teaspoon of honey just to bring out some of the sweetness of the beets and other things I put Mm. in there. And then the the macnut oil just gave it this, this very um, balanced flavor and brought everything together and they just went head over heels for it. So it's, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily sacrificing anything other than maybe saving a few dollars in some cases um, and uh, working more with the planet to, to uh, rely less on the fossil fuels and so on that, and packaging that 
it costs to bring those things in. Because, I, I mean, even just uh, throwing away the, the glass bottle, yeah, it's glass and it breaks down and it's, you know, that's okay on that, on that level. But if I can just take my mason jar a couple miles away when I'm in that direction and pick up my magnet oil, isn't that better? Hugely. <laughs> uh, we just have to convince other people that it's worth the extra effort to right. do that. Right. Um, it just takes a little organization, right? Organizational and uh, education, mm -hmm. and um, there is undoubtedly a, a, a requirement for a raising of consciousness too. You and I can sit here and agree on the fact that you know imported foods are actually subsidized um, because of the transportation costs and and the the real costs of. Uh, bringing things thousands of miles um, is, is not transferred to the consumer, mm -hmm. um, which makes it very hard for the local farmer to mm -hmm. compete. Very, very hard. Um, and we can say that because we're conscious of that, but not everyone is. Right. And that's the learning curve. And right. We're going to wrap up soon, but uh, I did want to ask, do you think there is in some way uh, creating a mystique around Hawaiian products that might actually end up coming from the mainland or Japan for people who are local to really start to appreciate it or, do, or does it seriously? Does, I mean, cause if you think about it, that's kind of why my cousins in Jamaica don't drink coconut water, right? Because they think that everybody in, um, in America, which is the land of progress and streets are paved with gold are drinking some kind of Bang. sugary juice, drink. right? <laughs> some sugary <laughs> colored juice, right? So, so, um, you know, is, is that going to be part of the equation is creating demand for our products elsewhere do you think, or or do you think we can actually do this as a homegrown effort? I'm hoping we can do this as a homegrown effort. Um, we have the most motivation of, of anywhere to do that because we are an island and we can identify what local foods are. Local foods are actually produced here on the island. Mm -hmm. It's a lot difficult, more difficult to define that, um, say on on the mainland. We also are aware that a tragically high percentage of the foods are imported, which puts us at great risk if the transport system is disturbed and would cause a huge, huge um, um, amount of trauma if we did. Uh, the supermarkets right now are only stocked with not just foods, but every other item. Uh, that would last us less than, well, they say 11 days. Mm. We're out of everything. The, the supermarkets are empty. And, and not just foods, but everything. Because they're relying, they're, they become more and more dependent upon that container arriving on a regular, yeah. weekly, bi-weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't happen, we're in big trouble. And that is a big motivation, which we have here in Hawaii that other places don't feel so intensely. Right. Um, we also have, as I mentioned, the experience to look back on how the Hawaiians did it. Mm. They did it very well. They were very, very healthy people. Yeah, very robust. Very robust, very, very big and strong. And this was the same Aina, the same land. If they did it then with the knowledge we have and the knowledge we can get by asking some of our kapuna, mm -hmm. um, we can get back to that uh, or closer to that, let's say. Right. We can move in that direction. 
Right. Yeah. I think there's, uh, you know, part of the, the Hawaiian pride and the movement by some people to make Hawaii an independent country, et cetera, et cetera, needs to take this into consideration. And my girls go to a Hawaiian charter school, which is Hawaiian focused, and they're bringing back language and dance and so many elements of of that and of the culture. And I keep talking to the principal about let's do something with food because mm-hmm. these kids, if they, if you want to connect with your culture, that's why, that's why, you know, the cults, when they want to recruit somebody, they take them away from their food. Mm-hmm. You, you tell mm-hmm. somebody to eat mm-hmm. something that's not their native food or not what they ate with their families. You can rip them away from their families. Oh yeah. So, um, you know, this is, this is one of the, the things that I'd like to see is just, Again, we're speaking from Hawaii. You might be somewhere else in the world and you, you know, if you're from Poland or France, what have you, it's going to pertain to you as well that just taking stock of what your ancestors did to keep themselves, to make you alive today, basically, because if it was wrong, if it was so wrong for so many millennia, then uh, you wouldn't be here today. So we have to have some respect for those traditions because there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from that. Uh, so I'm, we're going to wrap up, I think now, uh, Graham, but, uh, one thing that, uh, there's so many things that we could continue to talk about. And I know we had a lot of things on deck and I'm probably going to have to have you back on, (laughs) but, um, I wanted to find out what can people do where they are, uh, what, wherever they are in the world, what can they start to do to actually, I have another question for you after that, but (laughs) what can they start to do right now that would make an impact on the environment and on the food systems and give them more security. I think to support farmers markets, if you have one in your or start area, one yeah. or look for locally grown foods. If you do shop in a supermarket and if you pick up value added products, packages, tins, just turn the label, label over and look at where it was produced and give some consideration to the costs that were involved in transporting it. Mm-hmm. And the further it's traveled, the more resources were used in bringing that, that product to your supermarket. And do we want to continue doing that, supporting that? Because that's the oil industry and mm-hmm. also exploitive labor industry because right. the, it's been transported through cheap oil and, cheap, and produced cheaply because of cheap labor. Uh, we need to support our local farmers if we want to become sustainable. Right. And and I think that's uh, it's important, especially now uh, where people are talking a lot about raising minimum wage and so on and so forth. The the money has to come from somewhere. And we, you know, if, if people want to make more money, we have to make sure that that money is getting back into our local systems, don't you think? Uh, and not going overseas to wherever or, or, you know, just a totally different locale. Uh, that I think it's important just to keep that money, you know, try and keep it somewhat locally so that, yes, your your neighbors can live sustainably. One thing I, I found uh, with when I was in Switzerland several years ago is the farmers there were living nice lifestyles. You know, they weren't subsidized as far as I understood. They weren't being subsidized, at least not as heavily as they are here. Um, you know, they were selling apples or, or foods that were very, uh, you know, very local to them. 
And uh, the guy had, he was doing construction on his house, had marble countertops and all the, you know, all the bells and whistles that people want, right, in their, mm-hmm. in their homes. You go to a farmer here, you're lucky if, you, if they, they have, like, electric light. Some of them are just burning kerosene <laughs> because they don't have the means to, to do much more than that. And I think that's, um, you know, do we want to see our, our farmers living in squalor? Uh, and I think most of us would agree that that's, that's unjust uh, for them. The... Other, what was the other question I was going to have for you? You were going to ask me when I could come back. Yeah, when can you come back? Because, yeah, we have a whole thing. Because you know what? Sustainability, one of the things that, that Graham has talked to me about is the fact that uh, sustainability, it doesn't stop with just uh, the the food being grown locally, but the stuff that's used to grow the food being grown locally. So I'd like to have you on another time where we can talk about getting, uh, you know, going beyond organic and beyond some of these other systems uh, to uh, rebuild the soil, similar to how the Hawaiians did. And, and I'm sure wherever you are in the world, there was a tradition of, of keeping the soil alive uh and a lot of that is is uh by not monocropping as we mentioned by realizing the wealth is in the soil Mm -hmm. the wealth is in the soil not from the food that it has produced but in the soil itself because that will perpetuate Mm -hmm. if you do it right right so what's one food this is a question i was gonna ask you what's one food that you have given up that to support sustainability like do you eat rice no do you very eat, rarely do you eat wheat very little mm-hmm. um I, i'm when breadfruit's in season i'll eat it twice that's, that's a day what, i made <laughs> every and day I, you know i i made and, and I should, my kids I should post do this. too you know i should make I, I should i should post this on on facebook or something i made a uh a blt on breadfruit uh-huh. it was the best blt i ever <laughs> all right now, if only i could get the mm. b locally <laughs> actually i do have local bacon now but uh, you know, it's it comes in 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 baby steps because sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes Absolutely. it's sometimes it is a matter of sourcing that, yeah. and the more you talk about it to people, the more you'll find that other people are interested in it, and the more doors will open. Like you go to a farmers market, if you don't know where to find, for example, good bacon, go to a farmers market, start talking to people. You'd be surprised who the person who selling apples knows somebody next door to him who doesn't go to the to the farmers market yeah. but slaughters, uh, you know, just slaughtered a. a so anyway um thank you so much graham for being with me today uh his website is hawaiisustainablecommunity.org he is the president of the hawaii sustainable community alliance and you can get in touch with him there if you want to find out about getting uh local in your neighborhood uh thank you so much for being with us thank you all right appreciate it all right thanks and we'll have you back look forward to that awesome The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks! Thanks!